And welcome on in, everybody, to the Check Your Brain podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Um, it could be on Patreon if you're watching this early and early access to guests here on Patreon at patreon.com slash Tony Mazer or on locals at checkyourbrain.locals.com. But if you're listening for free on the podcast platforms and all the apps, the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everything like that, um, thanks and keep subscribing. And if you want more podcasts, again, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer. And that is my name, Tony Mazer. And a lot of folks know me that uh, I, I like talking about a lot of random things could be politics could be pop culture but a lot of people come to my twitter page because on my twitter page and my pinned tweet is i thought sports was way more entertaining better in general when we still had marlboro man ads all over the scoreboard and i love those days and i get very nostalgic and especially during the whole COVID pandemic and the lockdowns there weren't sports so i went back in time and started watching old TBS Superstation broadcasts of the Atlanta Braves back in the day and Pete Van Weeren and uh, Chip Carey or Skip Carey and then his son Chip eventually joined. So I love that old style of baseball. When I saw this gentleman who I've been following for a number of years, does a great, great work on social media. When I found out he has a book that's coming uh, that's out and it's called The Forgotten Nine baseball players who belong in the hall of fame. And it's by a man named David Chapman. And he is my guest here on the podcast. David, thanks for uh, being a part of this. Thank you for having me on. So um, as uh, if you're watching on the video right now, there's the book. You can get it over on Amazon. It's uh, it's been out for a couple of weeks here, but uh, let's talk about this uh, w without, because I obviously when I have people on to talk about a book, you want them to, you want the listeners to go get the book. You want somebody to like, hey, wait a second, this this sounds really interesting. Don't give away too much in it for a podcast interview. But I would like to know who some of these forgotten nine players are and why they do belong in the Hall of Fame. And I guess we can get into a uh, discussion later on of players that maybe that you've taken a look at over time that probably shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame or some that because I, I have a laundry list of guys who've been, been included in the last couple of years that belong in the very good Hall of Fame, but really did not deserve to be in Cooperstown. So let's now, talk about Scott uh, Rowland. Oh, yeah. gee, don't get me started on Scott Rowland. I, I did a whole podcast about it of somebody who worked in Philly, uh, my buddy Russ Cohen. Philadelphia, they're doing a whole ceremony this summer about Scott Rowland, about, oh, we loved him. He's one of us. Philly hated him. They hated him. <laughs> the, the, the media hated Scott Rowland should not be in the Hall of Fame. So, well, let's get into that. But let's talk about the book first of, of who some of these forgotten nine players are, in your opinion, who should be in the Hall of Fame. So these players are all pre-1920s. Um, they these the pre-1920s era tend to be the easily forgotten because most of their kids and their wives and their grandkids are already dead by the time the hall of fame even existed um the most egregious cases are in the book the forgotten nine um just as an example the ross barnes anybody who's a somewhat of a baseball historian knows who ross barnes is um, he is a guy who dominated the early days of baseball, but he played most of his time in the National Association. And for some reason, baseball writers, baseball historians take an issue with that because it was a lower level of play, less quality of play, 
So they exclude him and anybody who played a majority of their time in the National Association. But during the National Association of 1871 to 1875, there was no other professional league in existence. It may have been a lower quality of play, but that was your major leagues. Yeah, whose fault was that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just almost pettiness to the point where there's like they'll put in, like we said, Scott Rowland, but they won't put in this guy. He holds all the offensive records for the National Association. Every single one of them. This guy bats. That's incredible. Yeah, he he bat four hundred four times, and he's not in the Hall of Fame because the league was a lower quality of play. That's fine. It probably was, but at the same time, it was the only professional league in existence, which by default makes it a professional and a major league. So, what's the beef here? Look at the. I pulled up. If you're watching on the video on YouTube right now, I pulled up his stats. So his first year in the league, there played 31 games. He hit 401. He didn't even lead the league. (laughs) Imagine hitting 400 and still not leading the the league in hitting. Or I mean, his lowest year looked like his last or one of his last years there, or last couple of years, and he's hitting 272, 266, 271. That gets you. That gets you in the All Star game in 2023, Mm -hmm. and those were his weak years. That's incredible. Yeah. so he didn't hit home runs, but nobody hit home runs back then. Um, Lip Pike was the home run king back then, and he was hitting like five home runs a year. So um, we're not really discriminating against home runs. Um, it's the batting average. It's the number of hits per season. I mean, he's got like 138 hits in 60 games. It, in, in 1873, he it's like that's almost two hits per game. And this guy is not in the Hall of Fame. He has 860 career hits and 499 career games. And he's not in the Hall of Fame. It, it, it's funny when we compare eras, and it, it's kind of like this in all sports, where you see the early days of the NBA and the, pre, uh, the pre-Wilt Chamberlain, the pre-Bill Russell days of the NBA. It's very folksy, the, the, the Peach Basket, Dr. James Naismith. And everyone want, wants to compare eras, and they say, well, this person is like I, I saw somebody locally here in my neck of the woods in Ohio that said mm-hmm. Bill Russell was overrated because he didn't play anybody. He didn't play against anybody. He was inferior competition. Is that Bill Russell's fault? And if you gave the same opportunity, if we, you know, we'll get into it in the next podcast talking about equality and equity and all that stuff. If you gave somebody, uh, you know, you gave some of these players like Ross Barnes the same opportunity of supplements legal or illegal, whatever the case, weight training, all of this, how much better would he play today? And it's always this weird argument in sports. Of course, you know, sports talk when it's a light season or it's, uh, you know, between seasons, we get into these topics, but it's just, it doesn't seem fair when everybody wants to compare eras. So by that logic that this guy doesn't belong in the hall of fame, but you can put in some punch and Judy second baseman for a league who has way better stats by comparison outside of batting average. It's just, it's a, it, it becomes a silly argument and it gets really muddied down. I say multiple times in the book that these players don't get to choose which era they play in, but the, I grew up believing that the standard for getting into the hall of fame was dominating the era you played in. Correct. Not dominating the era 20 <laughs> years from now or 20 years ago but your era 
Yeah, that's where we get into that discussion of if you don't hit those milestones, the 300 wins, the 4,000 strikeouts, the 500 home runs, the 3,000 hits, Mm -hmm. I do believe that if you dominated your era, you should be considered, at least considered for the Hall of Fame. And Pedro Martinez did not have 300 wins. He won a lot of games in those days, especially, name me a better two-year stretch in recent time of pitching than Pedro Martinez in 1999 and 2000. Uh, but he didn't have 300 wins. So does he not belong in the Hall of Fame? No. Of course, I mean, I mean, he does belong in the Hall of Fame. And he is in the Hall of Fame because he dominated his era. There, there was no scarier pitcher on the mound, maybe outside of Randy Johnson, especially if you're a bird flying by, than, uh, than Pedro Martinez from about 1997 to 2004. It was incredible. So dominate an era. And what you what we saw there with that gentleman and one of your forgotten nine here in the book is the, on baseball reference, when you see a number that is in bold, that means they led the league. And there's a lot of bold there. Look up mm-hmm. Scott Rowland. I can look it up right now. Scott Rowland never led the league in anything. So you want to talk about somebody who didn't even hit 3,000 hits, didn't get those lofty milestones, and still didn't dominate in anything. That's where I think that there's some players who do not belong in the Hall of Fame. Well, and speaking of third baseman, an actual third baseman who should be in the Hall of Fame, I mentioned him in my book too, Lav Cross. Um, He had like 2,600 career hits, and when he retired, it was like sixth all time. Sure, it wasn't 3,000 hits. It's not one of the highest number of hits now, but he sure as hell dominated his career at the time. He played well. In, he played into his 40s. Um, when he retired, he held every defensive record for third baseman. He was clearly the most dominant third baseman defensively of his time. And nobody even knows who this guy is. Most baseball fans have never heard of him. Um, you look at the number of RBIs that he had. Um, he's, I believe he's the only one of like two people to ever have a hundred RBIs in a season without hitting a home run. And that was wow. in 19. And that was right there in 1902. Yeah. You don't see that nowadays. I think, uh, I think there've only been a couple of examples and not recently of a player who has under 10 home runs, who also gets a hundred RBIs. And yeah. I think in the last maybe 40 years, there've been two players and, one of them was Paul Molitor. I think Paul Molitor was the last one to have 100 RBIs and not have 10 home runs. And I think the other was, uh, uh, gosh, what's his name? Oh, um, not Dickie Thon. It was, uh, I think he played with the Cardinals back in the day. I'm, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he, uh, um, oh, why, why am I doing this on a podcast? But anyways, yeah, that's that's very tough to do. And 100, I mean, look at this. He has 132 RBIs in a season with seven home runs. Here's another one, 101 RBIs, two home runs. Uh, This just absolutely incredible stats here. Almost 1,400 career RBIs on only like 100 home runs career-wise. So you're talking about a guy who played 21 years here. And I mean, what we were just talking about, the bold type on baseball reference that he didn't lead the league, but this is a defensive guy that played that long. How many gold gloves would he have had? Would he have had 20 gold gloves in his career if, if oh. this was the Rawlings gold gloves around? At least 15 because he played early in his career as a catcher um, mm. and he had injuries. So then they moved him to third and that's when his career took off. So if you see those early years where his numbers are kind of down, 
that's when he was playing catcher. Um, he was a good catcher, but back then nobody wanted to be catcher because they didn't have armor. They, they had terrible gloves. Injuries were abound, and he constantly was injured in his early years. They, but they wanted to keep the bat in the lineup, so they moved him to third, and that was all she wrote there. And third base is still a taxing position, too. I mean, it, it, it's not you – know, you're getting a lot of shots down there. And that's why about 10 years ago, this is – I really credited Miguel Cabrera. Mm-hmm. When he moved over, he was a – started his career as an outfielder, and then they moved him to infield. He would play first base and DH when he came to the American League. And when Prince Fielder was signed by the Tigers in 2012, he moved across the diamond and won the MVP the next two years because of Prince Fielder. And people forget about how taxing that position is, especially if you're a guy that for the last several, several years, you did not play infield or at least didn't play the hot corner. So it's a, it's a much more taxing position. And, uh, and, and getting back to Scott Rowland here is they keep talking about, well, there's not that many third basemen that are in the hall of fame. So, okay. So then don't put third baseman who we don't think deserve it. I mean, right. There is a there's a holy grail, and you talk about Brooks Robinson, Eddie Matthews, Mike Schmidt, uh, Wade Boggs. Even though Wade Boggs defensively, he he got better as time went on, especially by the time he got to the Yankees. But obviously, being a, having a career batting average over three thirty gets you in the Hall of Fame. Um, but uh, you don't need to water it down when it comes to third base. But I mean, again, like you said, these statistics here not really leading the league in much outside of, you know, and, and doing well RBI wise, but it, you get to that topic of do defensive players like an Ozzie Smith deserve to go into the hall of Oz, Ozzie Smith's numbers are very mediocre. He was a two sixty hitter, I think total, but he had 13 gold gloves and he was the most dominant shortstop in the game for that stretch throughout the 1980s into the nineties. So you kind of go, yeah, no, I mean, you couldn't get a ball past him. So I think defensive players do should have a, a look no matter what when it comes to the Hall of Fame. One of the players that I point out in the book that should, is questionable for the Hall of Fame is a guy by the name of Ken, Tim Raines. Yes. Um, he's got 800 career stolen bases, but that's about all he did. Um, he was a very average player outside of stolen bases but they put him into the hall of fame because he stole a crap ton of bases. Well, I'll, I'll, here's where I'll push back on that just a little bit, because in the, in the eighties, Tim Raines played kind of like with uh, Andre Dawson. Andre Dawson was a great center fielder and he had to move to right field because he couldn't take the, essentially the uh, concrete that was painted green up at uh, uh, Olympic stadium in Montreal. Tim Raines, uh, ended up playing left field for the, the Expos. It was a very good table setter for that team. Um, but I will say, though, Tim Raines is one of the better players. I would say a top 10 player in the game from about 1982 till 88. But then you look at how long he played. He's, he's one of, I think, 29 players to have played in four decades. Um, Tim Raines had a nice, solid six-year stretch. But then he also played 20 something years. So that means he had like 13 mediocre years. And I'm a being from Cleveland. Kenny Lofton was my favorite player growing up. But and and he had a great stretch from 94 to 99. But they're very similar players where they were table setters. They can get on base. But the second half of their careers, they played on so many different teams didn't do as well, never reached that level that they used to be. And the way I look at it with statistics is that if you carried on 
and you moved on to another team and you still maintain that dominance, that's where I think it's a real win. You shouldn't have just a couple of good years and then the rest of your career is mediocre and you just live off of those early couple of years. And again, I love Kenny Lofton, a huge fan of him growing up. I still don't think he deserves the Hall of Fame. And I don't think Tim Raines deserved to be in the Hall of Fame, but I think they put him in because I think he was on the final ballot. They just gave him a bone there. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of high number of stolen bases, there's another guy in the book, Arlie Latham. Um, not a very well-known guy, but he had 749 stolen bases. He was a part of a lot of pennant winning teams. He was the first ever third base coach. He kind of invented that. Um, just in the Hall of Fame, possibly through um, innovation and um, pioneer for the game, as well as um, he's the Great only mustache player. too. Yeah. He's <laughs> the only guy um, in the top 10 in stolen bases, not in the hall of fame. Really? Okay. Yes. So let's see. Stolen bases. Yep. Yeah. He only stole 129 bases in 1887 and didn't lead the league. Yeah. <laughs> Some guys, most players nowadays will never get 129 stolen bases in their entire career. He gets it in one season and still doesn't lead the league. Right. Boy, is that a lost art form? What do you think about that? About the the fact that stolen bases, situational hitting, bunting is just, it seems like a thing of the past. It's a thing of the past, mainly because of the um, advanced statistics. Everything's launch angle now. Everything is slugging on base percentage, OPS. Um, the, the money ball era where they don't want to give up out. So they don't bunt anymore. They don't value stolen bases because it risks an out, um, things like that. So yeah, it's a lost art form, but they do want to encourage it now because they've made the bases bigger. Oh yeah, that's true. Well, cause w- one thing that I heard is I you remember in the nineties when Yvonne Rodriguez and no one ran on Pudge Rodriguez. Right. And they said, oh, well, that it's it, the catchers are getting too good now that the pick uh, you, you know, you'll have lefties who will try to pick you off at first base. There were some great ones back in the day. Andy Pettit was great. Mark Langston was great. Um, but as far as getting a good jump and now now you'll have players that have 35 stolen bases who lead the league in it. And it became a lost art yet wasn't too long ago ricky henderson had three or had uh, i think three years in the well i know vince coleman had at least three years in the 80s his first three years had over 100 stolen mm-hmm. bases in a year uh ricky henderson was i mean and, and they didn't look like track athletes vince coleman was never like he kind of almost looked squatty and ricky henderson looked like a greek god and looked like a, a player who can hit about 45 50 home runs if he wanted to um, but they loved stealing bases and that's just a long lost art form that I wish came back. And it's just, unfortunately it's not, it seems that the statistics, the, uh, we talk about wins above replacement and batting average on balls in play and launch angle and everything is kind of, it, it, it's hurting the game in a lot of ways and it's making the game a lot more robotic and, uh, when you in the last few years, when you've seen shifts for somebody like a, a Joey Gallo, who's a left handed player, who's going to hit the ball to the right side. If he makes contact, he's going to hit it to the right side. Everybody on the team during the shift era was moving everybody on the right side. Now, conventional wisdom would think, hey, 
every single person is on the right side. Why not I just dink it over to the left side? What does he do? He continues hitting it in, in, into the shift. Yep. And then we have to go as baseball people go, well, we got to ban the shift. No. How about you learn to hit opposite field? And then when I get pushback on that, they say, well, they're going to pitch him inside. So he does hit into the shift. Then, then don't hit that ball. It's just it, what what are batting coaches doing? I don't I have no idea what's happening nowadays. I mean, the um, part of it, I'm almost dumbfounded at it, really, because it's what's going to happen now is they're going to find another loophole. The Red Sox already did it. Um, and they're going to bring in the, the center fielder or the right fielder and they're going to play with that. But. It, it always drove me nuts because, like you said, you could just hit it the other way. But I, I think that um, hitting has been taught this way for at least 20 years, all the way down to the lowest level, and they don't know how to hit the other way. It's, it's amazing that and, – and I play a lot of uh, a competitive softball right now so because uh, I'm in my mid-30s and my body's breaking down, so that's what I have to do. I can't play the hardball anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is interesting when you see opposite field hitting and it's a, it, it happens almost nowadays on accident that the launch angle became the Earl Weaver style where Earl Weaver said he'd prefer three run homers instead of a suicide squeeze or something like that. Well, that's the entire game. That's not just Baltimore Orioles baseball. This is the entire game is going after three run homers. and. What we saw in the last few years of the balls getting juiced, and they're basically admitting it right now. Yeah, they wound the balls a little tighter so the balls can be hit further. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing home run records fall. The steroid era, we have to demonize. No one in the no one in the Hall of Fame should have ever taken any kind of performance-enhancing drug. Uh, and we always look to the 2000 season. More home runs were hit ever. Except in the last couple of years, home run records just fell like this. And we're all supposed to just shrug our shoulders and go, well, I guess these guys are just eating well, and uh, maybe they had another gym session this week. And <clears throat> it's it's amazing. But actually, that's a good good segue here. Um, you know, when you talk about that era, the the dead ball era, the, the pre-1920 era mm-hmm. that we're talking about here, and performance enhancers. So, for example, right now out of this big Wawa cup, I have a pre-workout supplement. So I'm going to go to the gym after we get done with this podcast. And I'm going to get a good pump. I don't drink coffee, so I drink a, a pre-workout drink. It's tasty. tastes like Sour Patch Kids. Uh, that gets me motivated. It has caffeine. It has creatine, everything. It's going to has some nutrients to help build muscle. Mm. If I did that before a baseball game, that's not a banned substance for right now. But there are banned substances. There are performance enhancers. There are competitive advantages. And there's the big, vast difference between what is cheating and what is a competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. Now, we've also been hearing, well, guys have found ways of getting a competitive advantage since the beginning of time, since Abner Doubleday. What were players doing in those days? Were there uh, certain drugs? Was there something that some players were doing to get themselves hyped for a game? Uh, we've heard about greenies. We've heard about all their stuff. Like what got some of these players ready for a game that maybe we don't exactly know about in those days? So um, the first recorded use of PEDs was with Pud Gavin. He um, 
used some sort of substance that he injected into his arm um, that we knew was performance um, human growth hormones. Um, he won 300 some games. The most famous one is Babe Ruth. He would um, extract testosterone from sheep testicles. Oh, and it and inject himself with testosterone that for everybody who believed that um, he had upset stomachs before games because of the beer and hot dogs that he was eating. No, that was from the sheep testosterone. Sheep, was, sheep testicles and yes. getting testosterone from that. Uh, I mean, I, I've never heard that one. Yeah, <laughs> I'm dumbfounded. So, yep, that's what Babe Ruth did. Um, there, they would. Um, so when their arm would go dead, in other words, a dead arm back then was basically an arm that needed um, Tommy John surgery today, but they didn't know that. Um, so what they would do is they would spit on the ball, they'd put grease on the ball, make it move more because their arm can't make it move. So they would do that too. Um, stuff like that pretty much um i want to go back to the other point where we're talking about stats and um steroids with ops um not only is the um home runs happening but ops seems to be making people look better than they actually are Mm -hmm. um like 10 15 years ago when people were hitting home runs off of steroids their averages didn't really drop now like juan soto He's one of the best in the league, but he's batting 240. Yes. I o- mean, o- OPS. Well, OPS is on base percentage plus slugging for folks right. who don't know right. that. So it makes it kind of makes them look a lot better than they are. There's players out there that we are valuing. Chris Bryan is a great example. Chris Bryan is one of the most average players. He had two good career seasons, but he has that 850 career OPS. And so we got a nice big contract from Colorado. So and 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 war is another big one because you you can use these advanced statistics nowadays to justify anything. So mm-hmm. I've seen some players they say, well, so and so has a higher war than insert all time great Hall of Fame player. Like right. uh, you, you'll say somebody is like, oh, he he has a higher war than Robin Yount and George Brett. And you say, so you're telling me that you're using this statistic to justify why it's almost like agent talk that you have average fans and stat nerds who get together and are talking like Scott Boris. This is what you expect from Scott Boris mm-hmm. is that we're talking about, well, you know, his wins above replacement was here as opposed to this. And you're like, ah. and and then also getting to the days of war from players who are not in the hall of fame. And I've heard this about a lot of players that with these, this advent of the new saber metrics that they're looking back at some of the old players and saying, well, wait a second here, this player by comparison, by using these stats that was largely ignored by hall of fame voters decades ago is now coming back a little bit and saying, huh, maybe he wasn't so bad after all. And I use this example a lot player for the Orioles and the angels, Bobby Gritch. It's a good second baseman. I think again, a 266 career hitter um, played a long time, a couple of all-star games, but no one really thought two things about Bobby Gritch except until his retirement. And they looked at the wins above replacement and they said, huh, his war is one of the highest ever at his position. And I'm thinking again, he didn't dominate the era. He didn't have 3000 hits. He was a pretty nice player in the late seventies and early eighties. And that's about it. And we use those statistics to try to justify. Now, do you think with 
OPS and applying that to baseball of yesteryear and war. Do you think some of the players that you have mentioned in your book or others in that fringe category, that they're going to be looked upon with higher regard because of sabermetrics? I don't even use any advanced statistics in the book because it's those stats weren't even used or even in existence at that time. So it would just be rewriting history. Um, so Good I don't point. even, I don't even touch it. Yeah, that's, it's, it's fascinating because when we start to look back at that era and we romanticize about some eras and others, we don't, um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating story when you think about who is, uh, who could be available if we decide that we want to have fun with statistics. We all know what we all know in today's society, we like to have fun with and cherry picked statistics, <laughs> but we'll get, again, we'll get to that in the next podcast. Um, but, uh, uh, we were talking about with Babe Ruth with the sheep testicles, which I, I can't get over. That, that's hilarious. Um, that do you think, though, are, are you somebody who's a hardliner when it comes to performance enhancers that these people should not be in the Hall of Fame? So this is where I am. Uh, you either put them all in or you put none of them in. So if you're going to put Barry Bonds in, put Sammy Sosa in, put Mark McGuire in. If you Don't put Barry Bonds in, but not Sosa and McGuire. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that it's that big of a deal because it's always happened in just different forms. And a lot of people don't remember steroids in the nineties wasn't actually technically banned. It was banned after the fact, um, some of those substances anyway. Um, so it was kind of, it's kind of like punishing them for doing something that they weren't exactly breaking the rules on until like the late nineties. So, well, well, and also think about what happened in baseball in the eighties. Cause everyone wants to point to the 1994 strike, but I think it goes back a lot further than that. And I will, I will say that baseball truly changed with free agency. And when free agency occurred, catfish hunter and Reggie Jackson, a lot of those players in the mid to late, 70s then teams were starting to having to cash in if they want some of their players then you start seeing the dave winfields go from sleepy san diego that's never going to win anything to the big apple and other players are saying yeah i don't i don't want to play in kansas city i want to play in new york i want to play for the dodgers and then you had the the lockout in 1981 you know, the collusion scandal that happened in like 19, I think it was like 85 to 87, where owners all got together and said, these guys are making too much money. We need to find a way to limit the contracts to no more than two to three years. And that's where you had guys, the aforementioned Tim Raines, you had uh, Andre Dawson, Kirk Gibson, others who were waiting for a phone call. They had no idea what was going on. They were, they were at the top of their game and they wanted to be compensated as such. And a lot of that fallout continued into the 90s where guys were getting uh, they were getting back pay because of that. Then you had the strike that occurred in 1994. So it seemed like by the time 95 rolled around and Look, in Cleveland, we loved the 1995 season because the the Indians were they won 100 games. They had Albert Bell, they had Jim Tomey and Kenny Lofton and Viscell and Eddie Murray. But a lot of baseball, it took a little bit for them to recover. And that's why I truly believe Gene Budick, Bud Selig, others in baseball just kind of looked the other way when it came to the steroids. Everybody knew what was going on. Lyle Alzado in, in football 
I mean, he, he had been taking steroids since the seventies. A lot of players were doing some kind of human growth hormone or, or steroid for a number of years. And it wasn't until 2003 that baseball started seeing the slipping ratings and going, yeah, we should probably do something about this. They ignored it for a long time. So we know damn well that they were trying to keep this going and uh, mm-hmm. that they knew that it was going to be a problem and they ignored it. So they what probably, do you do? They probably tried to bring it back when they juiced the baseball too. Um, at the same time, I think free agency probably killed the Yankee dynasty too. Um, because for all of the 20th century, the Yankees did nothing but win, win, win at least once and every decade. And then all of a sudden free agency explodes in the nineties and two thousands. They were insured in the nineties because they had the core four, but once those guys aged out, they, I mean, they haven't been able to keep up with it and they, I mean, they have to compete with the Dodgers. They have to compete with the Red Sox, sometimes even the Cubs. The Cardinals um, somehow have figured out how to do a small ball, low pay type thing while signing one or two people. But, um, yeah, the free agency has killed the Yankees. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, you you bring up a good point because a lot of people feel that the Yankees are products of free agency that baseball had gotten out of control. But when you see some players that will just – you know, before the Padres have gotten good in the last couple of years, I, I always bring up the Padres as an example because San Diego is a it's it's an interesting town. And as far as sports go, they, they've lost the Chargers. They they had a basketball team. It's gone. And the Padres are just kind of a team that exists. And you would see sometimes every couple of years, a player t- takes a six to 10 year contract and Eric Hosmer type of player. Mm-hmm. I'll take a big contract on a bad team. Why? Because it's a big contract in a climate that you don't have to worry about uh, rain out, snow, anything like that. You can get a place over in <laughs> over in La Jolla and really nice and live out, basically live out your career. Never make another all star team. Everybody forgets who you are, but you make a ton of money. And uh, a lot of people, a lot of players have left the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers for those, uh, I guess, greener pastures. And when I say that, I'm talking about the money, the color of the money. Um, But uh, when you mentioned about steroids and and performance enhancers, and I'm also of that belief where you either put none of them in or all of them. But the problem with putting none of them or ignoring most of them, while, of course, David Ortiz in the Hall of Fame, is you put undeserving players in. And that's where we get into back into Scott Rowland. I think Harold Baines should not have been a Hall of Famer. I saw much of Harold Baines's career. Good player, solid player. Uh, couldn't play in the field. He was a hack in the field. He became a DH very early on in his career. I uh, am a, uh, I, I am, I really do not like seeing designated hitters and closers in the Hall of Fame, unless you were a closer who pitched multiple innings. Um, but I don't like Trevor Hoffman in the Hall of Fame, to be honest, because you pitch one inning. Yes, it's a tough inning. Yes, it's the key inning. You need to win that game. But we decided to put closers in the Hall of Fame because it's a stat that we decided, yeah, we'll we'll make it an official stat in the 70s. And that, that really is not that long. You're you're a glorified relief pitcher. And all these closers are former starters who failed. Uh, if you're a designated hitter like an Edgar Martinez, you're a DH because you had to focus on your hitting because your fielding was terrible. Edgar mm-hmm. Martinez was a bad third baseman. Not saying he, well, I, I wouldn't have even put Edgar Martinez in the Hall of Fame. Jack Morris is a guy that <clears throat> had an ERA like way above four. 
in his career. Yeah, he won more games than anybody, including Dave Steeb and Fernando Valenzuela in the 80s. But I don't think Jack Morris should be in the Hall of Fame just because he won a couple of World Series, had a great game in 1991 for the Twins. Just don't think it. Alan Trammell's in the Hall of Fame, liked Alan Trammell. But if you're going to put Alan Trammell in, you should put his counterpart in Lou Whitaker in the Hall of Fame. But I don't think either one should be in the Hall of Fame because they don't have the stats and they didn't really dominate the era offensively or even sometimes defensively. Are there any other players that you can think of that uh, have been included on Hall of Fame ballots and have been brought into the Hall of Fame other than what I what I had just mentioned there that uh, don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? No, but I'll take you a different way. Um, Kurt Schilling probably mm. should be in the hall of fame, but he's being excluded because of his politics. Correct. Um, there's also seems to be a thing with media that these guys. So Alec, I think Alex Rodriguez is doing it now where he's cozying up with all the writers. He's trying to be their friend. Um, and Very I would, point. I would not be surprised if he gets inducted first ballot because really, yeah, because I think he's making friends with the right people. Well, he's yeah, because uh, a rod is one of those players that he was actually hated for a lot of people. He was he was a guy who took a big contract to go to uh, Texas and then another another large contract to play for the Yankees. And he had been in the he was a tabloid guy and being with Jennifer Lopez and all this. It was he was always the guy that was causing a lot of controversy and people really started hating him. But you bring up a good point about cozying to the media. And a lot of players will get MVP votes. It's not even just Hall of Fame, but if you are cozy with the media, they will give you uh, props. I When I used to cover teams, I remember I talked to Scott Rowland in the locker room. He was really nice. We had a good conversation in the locker room. And I think a lot of media people will take a look at what happens in a locker room, depending on how much access they give. I was bringing up the example in 1995 that Albert Bell, is the only player in major league history to have 50 home runs and 50 doubles in the same season. He also hit over 300. The team won hundred games. He was a cleanup hitter, one of the most feared hitters of his era. So why did Mo Vaughn, who the only thing Mo Vaughn had on Albert Bell, I believe that season, he may have had a slightly better batting average and they had the exact same amount of runs batted in. It's because Mo Vaughn spoke with the media mm-hmm. and Albert Bell did not. And that's solely why he won the MVP over Albert Bell. And a lot of it is that's what what happens with these media writers. Um, David Ortiz, great example. David Ortiz says, this is our effing city after the Boston bombing and, and Boston media loved him. And they ignored the fact that, yeah, in 2003, he was on the list for PEDs. So you're the same people who said, we can't have oral, you know, my moral superiority. Yet here we are putting a guy who has been incredibly accused of taking performance enhancers and you couldn't wait to put him on the first ballot. Well, and look at his stats while he was in Minnesota versus Boston too. I mean, it was obvious the minute he got the boss that he started juicing um, because it was night and day. It was almost like when Barry went from 40, 40 to 70, 10. Yes. <laughs> he was uh, Ortiz was Ortiz was a, a he was kind of like, um, uh, uh, Kenny Vargas is a, a good example. He was like mm-hmm. a, a good DH, not a great DH from Minnesota. Then he flies under the radar, goes to Boston, has to compete against Jeremy Giambi 
uh, for the Red Sox to be the DH. And then all of a sudden he becomes the most clutch player in baseball history. How did that happen? How did that happen? So did he learn a new did he, batting stance? Did he, was he able to hit a, a curveball a little bit better? Mm. But again, if you're going to put him in the hall of fame, then you got to start looking at the others. And do you think with baseball writers, like you said about a rod as time goes on, are they looking at, and once the, old time 80 year old dinosaur writers start to die off and literally, or just retire. Do you think the newer crop of writers are going to look at the McGuire's, the, the bonds, the Sosa's, the Clemens and go, yeah, you know what? I may not have liked what he did in the two thousands, but Barry bonds, what he did in the nineties was hall of fame worthy. Do you think that's going to change at some point? I mean, it has to be via a veterans committee though, doesn't it? Cause didn't they fall off the hall of fame for good? Yes. The original ballot. So it'll have to be via veterans committee or some kind of committee, but it's possible. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be one of those cases where I, I think some of the players are are going to I would say they would warm up to their peers. But uh, yeah, no, it, it, a lot of them are dropping off the ballot, although I don't think Jose can say Jose can say had a decent career for a while. He did not have the stats to be a Hall of Famer. Sammy Sosa is one of the more curious ones because at least Mark McGuire, his first season in the league, he hit 49 home runs. You knew that he was a power hitter from the moment he stepped on the field. Right. Sammy Sosa was, I always, I always compared him to like a Reggie Sanders where he was a right fielder. He was a 30, 30 guy early on mm -hmm. in his career, but he was a guy that hit you 30, maybe 40 home runs. And that's about it. It was, it was a nice player, multi-time all-star, but then all of a sudden here he is hitting nearly almost 70 home runs in a year for a couple of years in a row. And you go, nobody gets that good that quickly. Yep. Um, and Sammy Sosa, I always thought that he would, um, he, he probably would have done better with the hall of fame voting. Had he not at that very end with the Cubs screwed up and the whole Chicago media just hated him. Um, but before that, before that last two years, he was loved by everybody. And had that stayed, he probably would have done a little bit better um, with the with the Hall of Fame voters. Yeah, I remember that the final year, a couple of years, he had a real falling out with Chicago media and the Cubs. And I don't even think the Cubs brought him back for like 15 years uh, for any kind of honoring or bringing him just as is anything at home plate or uh, Hall of Fame for the Cubs Hall of Fame. I don't know. It was, it was strange. And there's that Cork Bat incident, which we've now mm -hmm. found out Cork, cork Bats do nothing. If, if anything, it hinders your opportunity to hit the ball very well. But uh, Mythbusters really busted that. That's why you don't see guys like Chris Sabo or Wilton Guerrero getting popped for Corked Bats anymore, or Albert Bell too. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, uh, well, uh, this has been a great conversation. And uh, so the book is called Forgotten Nine baseball players who belong in the hall of fame. Obviously we didn't go over all of them because I want to encourage people to go check out the book. These uh, nine pre 1920 baseball players who've been hurt by, uh, the most uh, by the hall of fame. And it's uh, the book by David Chapman, my guest here on the check your brain podcast, David, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, good luck with the book and the book sales. 
mm-hmm. getting this out there, especially putting it out there right at this spring trainings going on, people really interested. And, um, you know, let's let's see if there's a way that we can convince some of these uh, convince the Hall of Fame to really take another look at these old time players, because sometimes it does happen where they look back at stats. I'll, I'll give you one quick uh, anecdote before we, uh, we end the podcast here. There's a player named Elmer Flick. And Elmer Flick was played with the Cleveland, I think the Cleveland Naps or whatever they were before they were called the Indians. And he was a guy that, I mean, you look at his stats, they look pretty pedestrian by today's standards, but he led the league in batting average and I think triples a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until, and then he was actually rumored to be traded to Detroit for Ty Cobb. And the Cleveland franchise said no. We we're not going to do it. He's too uh, he's too special for us. And then he had some weird abdominal or maybe appendicitis in the early 1900s and ended up um, having to retire early. So Cleveland could have gotten Ty Cobb, but they didn't. And it, so goes the curse here in Northeast Ohio. Um, Elmer Flick retired and he ended up building homes. He built and lived in my childhood home in Bedford, Ohio. And uh, it wasn't until I believe 1963. He finally got a call. He hadn't played baseball in, I think at that point, 45 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. And the Hall of Fame called him up and said, hey, your stats are pretty good. Uh, How'd you like to come to Cooperstown? And it was a it was a great story. So sometimes they do look back in the era and go, you know what? He did dominate his era. So maybe this book will help convince some people uh, that to, to, to go back in time and not just have a recency bias. Yep. So, David, thanks so much for doing this. Uh huh. And that's the Check Your Brain podcast. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Tony Mazer if you are listening for free or checkyourbrain.locals.com. And uh, yeah, if you liked what you heard, subscribe there for just as just five bucks a month. My name is Tony Mazer. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Check Your Brain podcast.